Well, good morning. Glad you're here this morning. If you got your Bibles, open them up uh, to chapter 18. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit this morning. We're, we've, we've reached the point in the book of Exodus where all of our eyes glaze over and our brains go, go numb because we're, we're hitting the uh, commandments, um, 613 commandments. And then we're going to, after that, hit the uh, description of the tabernacle. And the, the, the reason our, our eyes glaze over and our brains go numb is because uh, this section of Exodus is so full of descriptions, uh, difficult laws to understand. Um, and then the question is, what do we do with them as Christians? And then the description of the tabernacle is so full of just details that you can't help but kind of just glaze over a little bit and go, what's the relevance of this? So here's, here's what I, I want you to do, as we've done for the last seven weeks, is look for God. Look for what these things tell you about God, because as we said all along, God's plan for this whole thing was that the Israelites might know that he is God, that they might understand who this God really is in all his glory, all his greatness, all his goodness. And so as we read these passages, um, we're not going to go into detail about all the laws, but I do want us to see that the reason the law is given is so that they might know him better. And that's what God does all the time, is that his greatest goal is that you might know him and that you might know him for who he truly is, not who you think he is. Um, that's the whole goal. And so that's going to be my goal as we dig into these uh, chapters this morning. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these men and this opportunity to come together and to study and to learn and to grow. And, and Father, I don't want us to walk out of here more, more knowledgeable about the law. I want us to be more knowledgeable of the one behind the law, the one to whom the law points to. Lord, would we understand just how good and great you are and how holy you are and how righteous you are and how you have expectations of us as your children and that we can't meet those expectations no matter how hard we try. And so that's where grace comes in. And so, again, would you show us you as we dig into these passages? And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, what I want to do is, is back up just slightly because we skipped over a pretty important chapter last week. We were looking at all the whining going on by the Israelites, you know, that complaining about this, complaining about that. There's, there's water, but it's bitter. There's no water. Um, we don't like the Red Sea experience. They, they just complained relentlessly. But in the midst of it is this song. It's, it's chapter 15, and it's, it, the entire chapter is a song that Moses sings. And what makes it unique is that it sits in the middle of all the complaining. Everything that's going on, at least one guy has a song in his heart that, that's willing to say something about God. So while everybody else is complaining, this guy's singing, and he's singing the praises of God. Moses is able to see God in the midst of his circumstances. And one of the things I hope we're all learning is to look at our circumstances and look for God positively, not negatively. Not blaming God, but saying, God, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want me to learn from this? What, what could you be showing me about you in the midst of this circumstance? And Moses seems to get it. So he's praising God because he sees that God is good. And, and he didn't just let it blow past. You know, this incredible 
escape over the Red Sea with the parting of the waters and then the destruction of the, the enemy was something he noticed. And you wonder how much the Israelites noticed it because most of the complaints came after that, after God did this incredible thing. But Moses saw it and Moses couldn't help but sing about it. So this chapter 15 helps us get some context and it's gonna really set up where we go from this point forward. The, the fascinating thing about God's word is how everything fits together. And if you keep everything in its proper context, you're less surprised by some of the things you see and you're less apt to say, why is this here? Why did this happen? Well, the previous context kind of sets it up and that's exactly what happens here. Here's, here's just some of the things he said. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously for the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is after the Red Sea experience. This is after, after God has destroyed the Egyptian army, the Egyptian army of 600 chariots and horses. And, and, and it was evidently larger than that. There were more who came, but these are the ones who chased them into the water and who God destroyed when the waves crashed down on them. And he's grateful. He sings God's praises. He goes on and says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. I don't know if he sang this alone. I get the impression he did. There probably weren't a whole lot of people joining in. But even if he's the only one singing it, this chapter has great significance because in the midst of all the complaining, here's this one man who's singing the praises of God, who recognizes the hand of God and is willing to exalt God in the midst of it. And I'm convicted by that. I, I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy in the midst of all the complaining and grousing and moaning that I'm praising God for all that he's done. And, and he's not done. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There's no other God like you. Now, remember, this guy grew up where? In Egypt, surrounded by what? All kinds of gods. He grew up in the court of Pharaoh, where they worshiped all kinds of gods. And he's now reached the conclusion that there are no other gods but you. I've seen you destroy every God imaginable. And I believe in you. And I'm gonna sing about you. I'm gonna glory in you because you're a great and good God. And here's what happens. Because of what happens at the Red Sea, what God does to the Egyptian army, news gets out and news travels fast. Now, I don't know how, how it got out, we're not told, but it doesn't take long before that event becomes known because that's a pretty catastrophic loss for the Egyptians. Pharaoh was not killed in that excursion. He didn't go into the waters. He evidently lived to do sin on another day. He, he, he was not killed. There were many Egyptians who weren't killed in that disaster, and they went back and they told of what had happened, and news spreads. It says, the peoples have heard, and they tremble. See, when God does great things, and we praise him for it, and we talk about it, and we brag on our God, news gets out. And news got out here. He goes on and says, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, that northern area where all the conflict is going on right now in our world, along the Gaza Strip. Those people heard about it. The inhabitants of Canaan melted away. See, people are hearing about this great God. They've heard about the 10 plagues on Egypt. Now they've heard about the destruction of the Egyptian army, at least a portion of it. 
And these nations are beginning to wonder, what is going on with this people called Israel? What, what kind of God do they have? This is not a regional God that's stuck somewhere in Canaan. This is a God that no matter where they go, he goes with them and he does great things for them. And terror and dread fell upon them. See, God is setting up something. God is establishing a pattern. And it says that there still is stone. The people out there living in Canaan, living in Philistia, living in Midian, they don't know what to do with this God and this people who worship that God because he's pretty powerful. Because the greatest nation on the planet at that time was the Egyptians. And here this God has destroyed a good portion of their army in a pretty spectacular way. And so here's, here's Moses singing his praises, giving God the glory he deserves. And it immediately leads to what? A battle. You look at chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but because of what God did and because the rumors have gotten out and news has spread about this God, Yahweh, and the people of Israel, people are a little bit scared, and we're going to find out that there's a battle. And Moses is becoming increasingly more strong in his belief about God and what God's going to do. His confidence is increasing daily, but the people are continuing to struggle, right? We, we saw that last week. No matter what God seems to do, they can't seem to believe in God because we don't like these circumstances. And they're judging God based on circumstances. This is what we do, guys. We, something happens in our lives and we automatically begin to assess and judge God based on whatever the circumstances are. If they're negative, he's a bad God. He's an unloving God. He's a distant God. If they're good, he's a good God. He's a great God. He's a loving God. And we judge God based on our circumstances rather than the other way around, where we should judge anything that happens in our life based on what we know about God and view our circumstances through that lens rather than judging him based on what we think is unfair, unjust, unworthy, I didn't deserve it, why is this happening, what kind of God do I worship? See, at Rephidim, we saw this last week, these people had serious doubts about where is God? Where is God in all this? Here's what they said, and he, Moses, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So here you have Moses singing the praises of God, and these people going, where is God? There's a huge difference between those two perspectives, right? He's saying, God is great, God is good, God is glorious, God is wonderful, he's right here, he's my strength, he's my shield. Sounds a whole lot like David. And here are these people saying, I don't even know where he is. Where is this, this Lord? See, they're doubting God's goodness, they're doubting God's very presence, and at this place called Rephidim, because of what they do, and because they grouse and complain and they moan, Moses ends up calling the place Masta, Masa, place of testing. See, he, he's seeing that God is testing the resolve and the belief of these people. He's allowing them to get into situations that test their true belief in him. But see, they're testing God. They're saying, where is God? Where is God in the midst of all this? And they're shaking their fist in the face of God and saying, we don't trust you. He also calls it Meribah, it's, it's contention. They, they just keep fighting, they quarrel. So they're testing God with their unfaithfulness and they're quarreling with God. Two things I don't recommend to anybody in the room. I really don't think it's a wise thing. Now we do it because we're not always the brightest bulbs in the box, but 
We test God by saying, where are you? I doubt you. I don't think you're here. I don't think you love me. And then we quarrel with God because we don't like the circumstances in which we find ourselves. That's what these people were doing. And they end it with, where is God? Is the Lord even here? I do it. I mean, I look at my circumstances and go, well, where is God in this? How could this be of God? Where has God gone? Because if God was here, this wouldn't be happening. And see, when you say that, you're basically saying God is unfaithful, unjust, he's, un, he's distant, he's left the scene, he's bailed on you, abandoned you, and yet he hasn't. Because what immediately happens after Rephidim, when the people ask that question, is God even among us? It says, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand, that same staff that he threw down on the ground in Midian and it turned into a snake and he picked it up by the tail, the same staff that Aaron threw down in the Pharaoh's court and it turned into a crocodile and he had to pick that one up by the tail, same staff that he used to strike the rocks, same staff he used to part the waters of the Red Sea. He says, I'm gonna go up and here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna hold that staff up. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. I don't know where he got this idea from. It's a crazy idea. It's a bizarre idea. But you can tell he's got some pretty amazing confidence in God and in this staff. And he remembers that, man, when I struck the waters, the waters parted. And when I struck the rock it delivered water. And so I'm going to use this staff and I'm going to hold it up. He's expressing his faith, demonstrating his faith in God. I don't know whether God told him to do this or whether this is something he came up with, but he's showing that he trusts in God. The song was real to him and the statements in the song. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and her her held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. It's a fascinating story. It's kind of just stuck in here, but it's setting the stage for all that's about to come. Here is this guy, Moses, the only one singing a song to the praise of, of God, who is now facing the enemies of God and he's holding up the staff of God in order to beseech God for help and he believes that God will help. And guess what? He does. God intervenes. And because of what God does and their victory over Amalek and all his forces, Moses builds an altar, calls the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. He sees that God delivered them, that God was there, that God did step in. This guy, if, if no one else is, this guy believes that God is who he claims to be. And so he says, the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi. That's literally how it translates. He is the one to whom I raise my allegiance. He's the one to whom I turn. He is the flag under which I fly. He is all I need, no matter what I face. See, what he realizes is that God has delivered them. God has chosen them for some reason, and he has fought alongside them. Remember what he said to the people when they reached the sea and they couldn't get over it and the army of Egypt's bearing down on me. He says, stop, stand, and see. Stop fearing, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Watch God work. 
And when he saw God do what God did, he realizes that I can call upon the Lord in any circumstance and he will show up. That's what he learned. And he's demonstrated it here. And what did God do? He showed up. God, God delivered. It's interesting, though, that this is the first time they've actually had to do something where they actually have to fight. Now, we, we read earlier that they, they left Egypt in martial array. That, that term can mean that they left out in groups of 50 platoons. They were organized. They, you had to leave kind of organized with 1.5 to 2 million people but it also meant that they probably left a little bit cocky and arrogant because they were rich and they were free and they were headed to their promised land. But Joshua had to lead the people in battle. Don't you know that was a, probably a little bit of a chore to go, hey guys, this time we have to help. This time we have to fight. We have to get our hands bloody. We have to figure out how to conquer the enemy. And yet they did. And here's Moses up on the hill providing intercession. That whole picture of him lifting up that staff is, is really a, a picture of prayer, calling on God to deliver the people of God. And that's what we should be. We should be intercessors. We should have so much faith in God that we're willing to pray on behalf of the people of God so that God will do what only God can do. And here's Aaron and her. And I love the picture of the two of them standing there helping this man keep his arms up. Because as long as he kept his arms up, they could see the battle going Israel's way. As soon as his arms lowered, the battle turned. And so they realized, hey, he needs help. And they stepped alongside this man and helped him. It's a great picture of, of what we should be doing in the church today, right? That we, we're in the middle of a battle and some of us are inter intercessors, some of us are praying, some of us are actually in the trenches fighting, and then there are some who are just helping who are interceding and coming alongside, but ultimately, who's the one who brings the victory? It's God. That's why Moses says, the Lord is my banner. It's the Lord who gave us the victory. It's the Lord who stepped in. Yes, we had to fight. And what do they know about when they get to the land of promise? They're gonna have to fight. He's not just gonna hand it to them. And so now they're having to learn how to fight. These are slaves, guys. These are people who haven't, ever had to fight anything except hunger and, and defeat and being demoralized. And now they're actually having to go out and pick up whatever equipment they may have. I don't know if they got spears from the Red Sea shore that floated up after the defeat. Of the, I don't know where they got their weapons from, but they had to go and fight. And it says Jethro in chapter 18 shows up. And again, we look at these chapters and they seem kind of disjointed because they go from fighting Amalek and having a victory. And then chapter 18, we jump to Jethro. Well, who's Jethro? Well, Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses. And he shows up on the scene after what? After the Red Sea and after the battle at Rephidim. He shows up. And he says he heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel as people. Word has gotten out. Now, he lives in Midian. That's where this guy had been li living, Moses, prior to going back to Egypt. And he's there, Jethro, and he's got the family of Moses, and he comes to visit his son-in-law. And he sa it says, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. He's heard everything that has happened from the plagues to the Red Sea, and I guarantee he's heard about what happened at Rephidim just, just most recently. 
So this guy, Jethro, who we know earlier as Ruel, has appeared on the scene. And what's interesting about this chapter is this, this man shows up, and we can question, well, why is he here? And the easy answer is he's delivering the family of Moses. But there's something else going on here because God, again, is preparing the way for what's to happen next. That's what I love about these, these chapters is that God is setting the stage, preparing, preparing his people, preparing Moses as a leader for the next thing that's going to happen. Because what happens in verse 13 of chapter 18 is that Jethro, Ruel, the father-in-law of Moses, comes and shows up and he watches how Moses leads. It says, the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Get the picture. Again, we don't know how many people there are, but 1.5 to 2 million people. We know there's over 600,000 men alone, not counting women and children. So there's a lot of people. And it says that this guy Moses sat every day to judge the people. They would come to him with all their problems, personal problems, domestic disputes, legal disputes, Hey, he took my lamb, you know, whatever it is, they came to him and he had to solve all their problems from morning till evening. So Jethro's watching this and he's evidently an older man. He's the priest of Midian. I believe he's a priest of Yahweh, that he's a Yahweh follower. And he's watching his son-in-law kind of do his job. It's like if you took your father-in-law to work with you and he's just kind of watching you and giving you advice. You wouldn't want that advice any more than I would. And amazingly, Moses takes the advice. It says, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? What is wrong with you? What, What possessed you to do what you're doing? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? He just sits back and he watches a daily dose of Moses's life. See, they've already established some kind of pattern they, they've been traveling enough now to where this is now a normal day for Moses. First thing in the morning, till the, when the sun goes down, he sits and the people bring all their problems. And Jethro's like, this ain't gonna work. You're gonna kill yourself. This, this is like the worst form of poor delegation I've ever seen in my life. And he's gonna step in and he's gonna give advice. I hate advice. I hate advice from anybody. I hate advice from my wife. I hate advice from my father-in-law when he was alive and he gave it out religiously and regularly. Um, He lived next door. So I got a heavy dose of my father-in-law's wisdom, wit and advice. I hate advice and I don't think Moses is any different, but it's good advice. Why is this advice even given? Because God wants Moses to change the pattern of behavior. Why? Because he's got something coming that Moses doesn't know about. This guy, Jethro, again, Ruel, and I believe Ruel is probably either his priestly name and Jethro is his given name. We're not really sure, but it's the same guy. He comes to visit and they're still in Midian. Where's Jethro from? Midian. They're still over there in that Eastern side of the Red Sea and he's not had to go far to get to his son-in-law and he's there to bring his wife and his two sons so that they can reunite their family. It's safe now. They're not over in Egypt anymore. Moses has done his job, and now I'm going to bring the family together. 
It says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, now came to visit Moses in the wilderness. He brought Moses' wife and two sons with him, and they arrived while Moses and the people were camped near the mountain of God, Sinai, Mount Horeb, down there in that lower section of Midian. So that's why he's there extensively, but what he doesn't know is that he's also going to be used by God to give his son-in-law some free advice. He questions how Moses leads. And again, I don't like advice. I most certainly don't like advice about how I might lead. My, my home, my wife, my kids, my ministry. I, I don't particularly want it, don't think I need it, but we all do, right? We all need somebody to step in sometimes and go, you know, could I give you a little bit of counsel? And if we're wise, we'll listen. Yeah, consider the source, but this guy's gonna show up and he's the father-in-law and he's gonna give advice, counsel. And he basically says, you've spread yourself too thin. You're doing too much. You're too busy. You're a lousy delegator. You're trying to conquer the world by yourself. You need help. And what's amazing is, is that I think Moses is trying to trust God and he's doing what he thinks God wants him to do. He's trying to judge the people. He's trying to settle disputes. He wants everybody to get along. But if there's 600,000 men and maybe that many women plus children, there's a lot of trouble going on in the camp of Israel, right? Because they're people. They don't get along. They're disputing about everything. Heck, if they whine about God, they're whining about one another. How come he got the best, you know, campsite? How come his flock seems to be doing well and my flock's not doing well? What's up with that? And they're arguing and they're fighting and they're bickering and Moses is trying to make everybody happy. He's basically become the sole source of judgment and justice. Think about that. I, I, I wasn't successful in my own home carrying that off with six kids. How can you lead 1.5 million people and be the sole source of justice? You're the only one they come to to have all their problems solved. What a nightmare. It never ends. It's like he goes to bed at night and he walks into the tent. And he's like, golly, I got to do this again tomorrow never get anything done. He, you know, he's, he's a one-man show. And here's what's important. And I've, I've never seen this before. He's literally their living code of conduct. He's telling them what's right or wrong. Hey, you need to settle that dispute with him. You need to give that back. You stole that. that, that that's not yours. That's, he's solving all their problems and he's literally their code of conduct. One man and he ain't God. And so he's put himself in a pretty desperate place and Jethro's smart enough to go, this isn't gonna work. You need to solve this problem. And Moses says, the people come to me to get a ruling from God. They come to me. That'd be like if everybody in this church knocked on my door to have every dispute solved. And sometimes it feels like they do. Hey, solve my marriage, solve this, solve that. And I'm okay with that, but to think that you're the only one who can get a word from God. See, he thinks that that's what he's supposed to to do. When a dispute arises, they come to me, and I'm the one who settles the case between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. Man, what a task. What what a, I can't imagine waking up in the morning going, it's going to be a good day because everybody's going to come to me with all their problems, and I get to solve them all. So his father-in-law says, "What what you're doing is not good. What? 
What do you mean it's not doing? I'm trying to solve this future. I'm trying to help people live for God. I'm, I'm, and he goes, yeah, 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 but you and the people will certainly well your, wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You can't do this. This is just common sense counsel, right? But I think that Jethro is speaking on behalf of God because he says, you're not able to do it alone. This is impossible. It's not gonna work long-term, so now obey my voice. This is where I would go, well, wait a minute. You're my father-in-law. But he says, no, obey my voice because I'm gonna give you advice that I think is gonna make it better. I will give you advice and God be with you. See, he really does care for Moses. He really does want to see his son-in-law succeed. He really does believe that his son-in-law is gonna burn out if he doesn't change the way he's leading the people. So he gives him this advice and he says, obey my voice. But really guys, this is God using Jethro to help Moses understand that this is not the long-term solution to Israel's problem. I've got something better. And he speaks through Jethro to get it done. See, what I've learned in my life is that God often speaks through others and most often my own wife to help me understand the will of God. I've learned over the years just to listen because sometimes she says things and I go, where, where is that coming from? I just have this check in my spirit. I'm like, take Rolaids, whatever that is, just, just <laughs> leave me out of it. And she's almost always right. I just, I just don't think you should do that. I don't think we should do that. I don't think you should hire that person. I don't think you should take that job. I'm like, what do you know about this? You're a homeschool mom. You know, you, what do you know about anything? And she's almost always right, because I believe God speaks through our wives. And this time, God speaks through the father of his wife. He speaks through Jethro, and God wants Israel to have a true judicial system, and it can't be one man. See, this is what's fascinating, because if this doesn't happen, when God gives the law there's no system by which to effectively manage that process. See, we're gonna look at the law in just a second. But unless this happens, you've still got one guy trying to do it all and it's not gonna work. It's all done in preparation for God giving the law to the people of Israel. See, it's not gonna be Moses sitting on a stool or a rock with all the people gathered around bringing all their problems, it's going to be a multitude of judges because of Jethro's advice who sit down and judge the people. It's God establishing the foundation that will be necessary for the law to be effective among the people. One man can't do it all. It's gonna require more. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people's chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and they judged the people at all times. He got help. He delegated. I'm a lousy delegator. But you're not gonna grow and you're not gonna have real success until you learn to delegate. It says they ju judge the people and it sets up what's about to happen in chapter 19. This is where we get to the law. This is where we get to the 10 commandments and later the book of the covenant, the 613 commands that God's going to give the people of Israel and we're not gonna look at them in detail because guess what? We don't live under the law. We're not required to keep the law. We live in a different dispensation. We live under grace. We live under 
the law of Christ. And so these laws, I'm not diminishing the law, but the laws exist for a different reason. The law was meant to do something that Israel needed to see and to understand. So in chapter 19, the people are at Mount Sinai. It's been a while since they've left Egypt. And it says, on the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And on that mountain, God is going to show up in incredible power. And, and again, we're not going to look at this, but God shows up in lightning and thunder and smoke and all kinds of manifestation of an incredible theophany appears on the top of that mountain and it scares the bejeebers out of the Israelites. And they basically say, you go talk to them. We don't want anything to do with them. And God even says, don't let them anywhere near the mountain. And he puts a border around it. it says, if they do, I'll wipe them out. What's with that? What kind of God would do that? A holy God, a righteous God, a, a, a totally pure God. This God cares enough about his people to know that in their sinful state, they, can, they cannot come anywhere near him. But see, this manifestation is meant to show us that their God is holy and righteous and he's to be held in awe and reverence. See, this whole thing is exactly what God said back in chapter three, verse 12, when he, when he first called Moses, he said, I've called you at this mountain. This is where he saw the burning bush. And he goes, one day you're gonna come back with the people of Israel and you're gonna worship me here. And here we, we're, here we have it happening. He's got those 1.5 to 2 million Israelites and they're now at the mountain and God shows up in an incredible way and they're gonna live there for a year. They're gonna settle down at the base of Mount Sinai and for a year, God is gonna do some incredible things. He's gonna give them the law. He's gonna give them the sacrificial system. He's gonna give them the details for the building of the tabernacle. All in that year period of time, they're gonna sit there, they're gonna get comfortable and God's going to prepare them for entering into the land. See, everything happens in its time. And everything that happens at the base of Mount Sinai will change them forever. It doesn't change them internally. It doesn't change them from sinners into saints, but it will change their trajectory forever. Everything will be different from this point forward in terms of their relationship with God. So at Sinai, they're gonna hear their calling. God is going to literally call them into a covenant relationship. He's gonna confirm that covenant with them and they're gonna confirm it. They're, they're gonna have to ratify that covenant. Then he's gonna give them his commandments. He's gonna tell them how they're supposed to live. And then he's gonna give them this, this admonition, this call that you have to live under my code of conduct. Not Moses' code of conduct, my code of conduct. This is coming from me and you have to live under it. You have to agree to it. And then he's gonna say, if you do, I will give you victory over the Canaanites. I'll get you into the land, but here's what you're gonna to have to do. See, all of that happens at Sinai. That's a pretty significant dose of what God is going to do and what they're gonna to have to do for everything to happen in the days ahead. So God says to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of, of Jacob, the house of Jacob, tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You were there. You had a ringside seat to the greatest show on earth. You saw me defeat the Egyptians at the Red Sea. You saw the plagues. You saw what I did to the firstborn. 
how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if, this is conditional, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people for all the earth is mine. What is he saying? If you do what I tell you to do, you're gonna be my treasured possession. You will be more precious to me than any other people group on the earth, including the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the termites, you name them, you will be more important to me. That's a pretty significant promise. And then he goes on and says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And he does. See, God is telling these people that you are mine and I've set you apart. I've made you special. You belong to me, but you have to live like it. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be different, but you got to keep the covenant. See, there, there's some qualifications. There's some requirements in this relationship. He's going to set them apart, but they will have to live set apart. They will have to live differently because he says, if you will, then I will. It's a conditional covenant. You have your part to play. Here's what I will do. Here's what you will do. When my uh, youngest son was a senior in high school and we were having all kinds of issues with him and uh, he was trying to figure out where he wanted to go to school and he chose to go to um, OU and I said, that's fine, but it's an out-of-state tuition and we can't afford it. So, and I knew my son, he was, he was basically me on steroids. And I knew that if we sent him to OU, he was going to not study. He was going to probably try to join a fraternity. He was going to get in trouble. He would probably get involved with alcohol. And so I got a buddy of mine who was a lawyer in the church, and I had him draw up a contract between my wife and I and my son, a literal contract. And we sat down with my son one day and said, okay, here's the deal. We will fund one semester of your education at OU but here's what you have to do. And he goes, is that a contract? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you're going to make your son sign a contract? And I said, yeah, because I know you. And if it doesn't work out, you're going to blame me. So we went through it. He hated it. He was furious, but he signed it. And there were five caveats. If he broke any of those, the deal was off. By the end of the first semester, no, not even by the end of the first semester, by halfway through the first semester, he had broken all of them. And at the end of the semester, guess what? I had my car there and we were unloading his dorm room and he was livid, but he couldn't blame me. See, it's conditional. Here's what I will do, but here's what you have to do. This is exactly what God's doing here. Here's what he demands, complete submission and obedience. What? I thought, I thought you were giving us the promise line. I am, but here's what you have to do. Radical compliance to my will. Really? Well, that doesn't sound fair. Dad, you're going to make me sign a contract? Yeah, I am because I know you. That's exactly what God is doing with these people. I'm going to make you sign a contract because I know you. And I know you're not going to do really well on any of these things. Behavior that mirrors my character. See, part of what I wanted from my son was that he live in a way that honors God, but also honors his mom and dad. And he failed miserably. And he paid the price. And that's what led him to join the Marines, which changed his life. And he's now a graduate of Harvard, and he's got a job and makes more money than I could ever imagine. But God had to work on him, and God's going to have to work on these people because at the end of the day, 
It's conditional because God knows his people well. He knows they're gonna fail. He knows they're not gonna follow through. He knows what they're like. He knows they're not holy. He knows they, they, they're gonna mean well, but they can't keep their word. But he's still gonna bless them. And I love this. Moses came, called the elders of the people, set before them these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's like my son signing the contract. Fine, fine, whatever. And they, they, they show eagerness. They, they show enthusiasm. Yes, we'll do it. They're going to do this a couple of times, guys. They're going to just eagerly express their desire to be obedient, but they're ignorant. They don't understand. They don't know themselves well enough to know you'll never pull it off. I love Proverbs 19 too. Enthusiasm without knowledge is no good. Haste makes mistakes. It's like God lays out the contract, they skim over it, and they go, okay, yeah, fine, we'll do it. And he goes, oh, man, if you only knew, if you only understood, because what they don't is ask is, how, how are we going to pull this off? How are we going to live as a kingdom of priests in a holy nation? Think about it. God has called you to live in a way that honors him, to emulate his Holy Son, Jesus Christ, and we should go, uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to pull that off. We should have the same attitude. And the truth is, you can't. I can't. I can't live a righteous life. I can't live holy. I can't be fully obedient to God, even with the Holy Spirit living within me. So these people didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And they needed to understand that they were going to need help to live as a holy nation. So God's going to require that they adhere to his conditions. Here's my conditions. They're going to have to be cleansed. They're going to go through a purification process at the base of that mountain, and they're going to have to be consecrated. They're going to have to be set apart by God. See, God is progressively showing them, guys, you can't do this without me. You will fail miserably. I'm going to give you my law, but you're not going to be able to pull it off. You need to constantly come back to me. That word consecrated means to set apart, to be devoted. He wanted them set apart. He wanted them to physically understand that you now belong to me and you've got to live differently. You've got to live kadosh, holy. They're, they're from the same root word, guys. Set apart, sanctified, consecrated, sacred. You've got to live differently. And see, that's what you and I've been called to do. We, we have been chosen by God. We have been set apart as his sons. And he says, and now live differently. Don't live like the world. Don't live like you used to live. See, they've been set apart, but now they've got to live set apart lives. I love the set apart part. I love the fact that God has set me apart and I have a place reserved for me for eternity in his kingdom. I love that part. The part I don't like is that I, I need to live set apart. I need to live differently. I need to not look like the world. I need to not emulate the ways of the world. I, I need to live a life that reflects that something has happened in my life. And that's exactly what he's telling them. And so what he's going to do is he's going to give them this law. He's going to begin to unveil, here's my code of conduct. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first of the Ten Commandments, right? We know the Ten Commandments. We may have them hanging on a plaque on our, our home. We have them on our wall in our home, and I rarely look at it, and I rarely think about it. But these are the Ten Commandments, no other gods. See, when it came to how they were to conduct their lives, the descendants of Abraham would have a, 
a clear and uncompromising canon of divine regulations to guide them. No one would be free to do what was right in his own eyes. See, that's what we want to do. I want to live my life according to my law, my code of conduct, what I think is right, what I think is best for me. And God says, no, I'm going to make it very clear what I expect. God was going to make his will known and put it in writing. And the first command he gave addressed the ongoing problem of human autonomy and the desire for self-rule. You shall have no other gods before you except me. And that means you can't be your own God. As much as you want to be, like to be, you must have no other gods before me. You must make no images of other gods of any kind. You must not bow down and worship them. You must maintain the, the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I've set it apart. You need to set, apart, set it apart. And you've got to never dishonor or defame my name by anything you do. Now, these four, first four of the Ten Commandments are all directed between the relationship of, between the people of Israel and God Almighty. They're hor or vertical in nature. The next six are all going to be horizontal. Honor your father and mother. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not speak falsely about your neighbor. You must not covet. All of these have to do with things that are horizontal in relationship. See, what's important is they, he wants them to have a right relationship with him, but if they don't have a right relationship with one another, it'll never work. That's why the apostle John says, if you say you love God, but hate your brother, you're a liar. It's got to work both ways. And see, God's giving them this code of conduct and the 10 commandments are a summation of all the rest. They're like a summary of everything else that comes. And it's, this is what you need to do. It's freedom, freedom to worship God, but it's got limits. You can't live according to your own will. You can't do what you want to do. God's sovereignty trumps your autonomy, and we all hate it. I want to decide what's best for me. I want to buy what I want to buy. I want to live where I want to live. I want to do what I want to do, watch what I want to watch. And his sovereignty trumps my autonomy. I'm not my own God. I can't live by my own will. They bore his name just like I bear his name. I, I am his child, they are his children. And now they must bear his image to the world around them. See, the reason they were to live differently is so that they might expose who God is through their own lives. Here's the purpose of the law, guys. It's really clear, the revelation of God. God gave the law to reveal himself, to reveal just how holy and righteous he is. When you read the laws, whether you read the first 10 commandments or you read 613 additional laws, you realize that our God is holy and guess what? We're not. Otherwise, we don't need laws, right? Paul goes and says, you know, I wouldn't have known to covet, not to covet if somebody didn't tell me not to covet. See, the law just exposes our sin, but it really reveals the righteousness of God. It's a reflection of the character of God. He is a holy God and he expects holiness among his people. He expects the people of God, and the law was given to the people of Israel, not to the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Am Amalekites, the Amorites. It was given to the people of Israel. And it was his way of showing them the true condition of man, every man on the planet. See, this is what's so important, is that they needed to understand that it exposes man's sinfulness. It shows them their own sin. It's not showing them the sin of the world. It's showing their sin. We're the chosen people of God, and we got a sin problem. This is what the scriptures say. 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It shows us the righteousness of God, but it exposes our own sinfulness. That's why the law is there. That's why the law convicts. Paul goes on and says, it was given to show people their sins. Why, why did God give them the law? Because he thought they could pull it off? No, to show them you can't pull it off without my help. It exposes, it shows that we're sinners. Paul says, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not sent, said, you must not covet. He would have just kept on coveting. See, that's what it's for. That's what it does. It reveals our sins. So ultimately, all these commands point back to God. The interrelational aspect they describe has far more to do with the Israelites' views of God than anything else. The manner in which they treated one another would be a direct reflection of their understanding of God and their relationship with him. He was calling them to a life of holiness that was intended to illustrate his own set-apart status. They were to be holy as he is holy. They were to be different. They were to look distinct. They were to reflect his character by valuing what he valued and holding high esteem those things that were near and dear to his heart. So yeah, we're not digging deep. We're not going down into the, the, the core of all these laws. If you want to, go read the devotionary I wrote. Guys, at the end of the day, the laws are meant to reveal God. They show us our sin and they reveal his holiness and they make us dependent on him. I need him. So I want you to start out your discussion time describing a time when God's will ended up displaying his character. When God told you to do something, encouraged you to do something, and when you did it, it revealed his character to you. You maybe didn't want to do it. You did it begrudgingly. But when you did, you realized the character of God, the love of God, the holiness of God, um, the wisdom of God. See, that's what this is all about. In what ways do you see God's character revealed in the Ten Commandments? And how does God's law help us to know him better by exposing our sinfulness? Why does God choose to show me my sin so that I may better see his holiness? I don't like that process, but it's necessary. Then finally, read Romans 8, 1 through 4. What lessons are found in these verses concerning the law as provided to the Israelites? What has changed? What's different now? than what was true then. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your, these men. And I pray that as we talk around the tables that we would open up, that we would share, that we would wrestle, that we would discuss, even debate. And more than anything else, that we would wrestle with getting to know you better, that we would see you through the giving of the law, that we would understand that, Father, we're sinners and that we're saved by grace and that even our sanctification is all by grace and that we need you every day. And we will never be truly holy without your help. And we'll never be truly holy until your son returns again. But may we understand that you've called us to live differently so that we might point others to you. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.